Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 232. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and with me once again is my semi-permanent co-host, CEO of Zega Financial, Jay Pestricelli. Jay, welcome back. Thanks, Derek. Good to be back. I missed you for a few weeks. Well, it was one, but actually, technically, it's two weeks in between recording. It feels like a month since I've been able to talk to you about this stuff. So, well, just, I guess I really just missed it, man. That's it. <laughs> Well, you know who else we, we miss is our old pal, Bill Gross. Bill Gross put something out today. You remember Bill, right? He's hanging out in Orange County, retired now. I feel like I've heard the name before. Maybe he's a Bond guy. Yeah, the Bond King. The Bond King. So Bill Gross put some, uh, put out a, a, a zeet. Is it a, a zeet or a tweet now? But he put something out on X slash Twitter. And he said, 10-year yields, question mark. Four and a quarter percent for now, but overall bearish, and bearish, mean, he means bearish on bonds. Bonds go down. Interest rates go up. Curve may disinvert by 10-year rising. We shall see with CPI up next. Jay, this has been my sort of base case. And if anyone listened to our podcast in December where we gave our predictions for this year, my base case may not be worth that much. But my base case is the Fed doesn't need to lower rates, especially if the economy is okay, we don't have a recession, and earnings are still doing well. Why wouldn't we have the back end of the curve reflate? Well, Jay, it's reflating. The whole curve is above 4%, and our buddy Bill Gross is saying, yeah, I think this this uninverts by the long end rising. Is Bill right? Okay, so I think, yeah, let's, let's, let's talk through this. You and I definitely have talked about the chance that the short end of the curve doesn't come down, the long end of the curve goes up. Um, but it's now your base case. That's interesting. That's, I thought I, that's news to me. I'm not going to call you out if that's what you're saying. That's what you're saying. Um, I would say, Derek, that the market in general has probably thought the other way, which I love that you were on the other side of that, right? I don't, you're, you know, being a contrarian is, is great. Uh, especially when, you know, uh, you got a rationale behind it and you're thinking of something nobody else thought. So I, listen, I think, um, you know, the, 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 the market has been so wrong about bonds for so long, wrong for long. I just, I, it's, it's interesting to see that, you know, everybody, oh, recession is going to come. The Fed's going to have to cut rates in 2023. And that's, what's going to get the yield curve kind of uninverted. It's because it'll be the same old, same old that it's, that's always happened. But uh, I listen, I think it would be very interesting what this could really mean. So let's, let's say we get uh, uh, the disinvert that Bill mentioned uh, over the next, whoever knows how long it takes, right? Let's say, say it takes six more months. Um, the Fed says, has said they're not going to lower rates anytime soon, right? Um, I don't know if they're necessarily, I haven't looked at the futures yet to, to see what the probability of them raising another time this year. I think some of the governors have hinted at even another raise. So I think we should assume no cuts this year. I think the market has uh, continued to show that it you know thinks the economy can handle what's happening in the bond market. So no cuts. So to get the inversion, that means you have to have like what, the two-year, three-year, Five years, seven year, ten year, twenty year, thirty year, all above five and a quarter percent. And to really get a kind of, I'm not saying a normal curve, but any kind of curve, 
you're now talking like what, 6% minimum on the 10 year versus a Fed funds of five and a quarter. Is that, I mean, that's a long way to go from where we are today to see a 10 year at six plus percent. And so, I mean, that's what this looks like. If the Fed does what they say and what Bill Gross is hinting at, and also now your base case is hinting at, I mean, you're saying 6% on the 10-year, Derek, or am I, am, am, am I taking it too far? Well, maybe. Why not? Why not 6%? But I could also see where the Fed comes down maybe to around 5 So they just rose, what are we, 5 and a quarter to 5 and a half? I could see us coming down to 5 following the 94-95 playbook where they actually dropped a quarter point uh, by September of that year. But look, I mean, we don't have to be super uninverted, meaning it doesn't have to be steep. We could be four and three quarters on the very short end. We could be five. We could be five and a half on the 10-year. But I think if the curve's not going to stay inverted forever, and one would say, all right, it could be flat, we could have twos and fives and tens all equal 5%. But I don't see, barring a recession, there's no reason for the Fed to lower rates, except for political pressure. We'll get to that later. Yeah. I, was like, I think I can think of one reason why, but, and I think we will get to that later. Yeah. I mean, so, and what is, and you're right. I mean, the market has had every bit of chance to get this right, and it's been nothing but wrong. I mean, whether it's the Fed funds futures, whether it's the just bond rates in general. I mean, the two-year, what was it a couple of months ago? Wasn't the two-year almost pressing under four? And now it's over It's over five, right? I think when I look today, I'd have to double check that. Yeah. 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 Well, it's just, just under five. So, and then, you know, what this is telling me too, if the back end reflates, it could cause some upset in the markets, but it's also saying that nominal GDP is going to be okay and growth is going to be okay. And I think all of those things become maybe okay for stocks. What do I know? That's why we hedge, Jay. But uh, this, this little move in the 30-year, in the 10s and 20s, I feel like everyone's been adding a little bit of duration, meaning, oh, yeah, I'm going to go along on... Uh, get out on the curve on bonds when everyone could get five and a half right now, it's stare or 5.4%. It's staring them right in the face, three, four, five, six months. So anyway, that's, uh, I, I think that could surprise some people. No. Yeah, no. And that could actually cause quite a bit of problems, right? So all the managers that have decided like, Oh, let me add duration. So well, maybe let's take a step back. Adding duration means buying bonds that have a longer term to maturity, right? Buying 10 years, buying 20, buying 30 year bonds, right? That's what, and the reason you do that is they are more sensitive uh, to interest rate changes. So if you think rates are going to come down, then you want to go as far out on the curve as you can, because then, you know, the, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a whip or a tail, right? A little movement over here in the near end of the curve causes a much bigger whip at the end of the curve, right? And so if you, if the market was, to uh, you know, have a drop in rates, it would uh, have a much bigger impact farther out on the curve. And Derek, the, the rule of thumb you've always given me, and I know this isn't exactly you know the, the exact math, but 
for uh, every year of duration, uh, it's about a one, it's about a change uh, uh, times each year. So for example, if there was a 1% change tomorrow in interest rates, uh, a 30 year would change about by 30%. Is that right? And a 10 year would change by about 10%, right? So if rates dropped by 1%, the 10 year would go up, the bond would go up in value 10% and the 30 year would go up. I think it's like 28 or something, right? But about 30, is that correct? Yeah, and Jay, what what you're saying is basically a zero coupon bond at, at 30 years, right? So, if the bond had a coupon, and I, I can do some quick math here for you. So, let's say you bought a bond today, and it's uh, oh, I don't know, it, it matures in 2053, and it had a five percent coupon. It have a duration around 13 years. So, what you're you were explaining, and I'm glad you did that, is is if it had no coupon. And one of the things that durations come into play is what are the cash flows? And the more cash flows you have, it deals with the present value of the cash flows. So, yeah, I mean, if, if you at a 5% coupon, 1% move up in rates, you'd expect, you know, 13, 13.5% drop on a, on a, and there are zero coupon 30 year uh, um, ETFs, by the way. People seem to love those when rates were going down. They were getting a lot of juice, <laughs> as you just explained. But, uh, but that's right. Yeah. So to, to, as you move out on the curve, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's just. So, the, yeah. So the, when, when managers add duration to their bond exposure, they're trying to capitalize uh, more on a drop in rates. Right. Uh, and so we're seeing the opposite with what happened this week with the downgrading of uh, the U.S. debt by. Uh, I always get the name wrong. Is it Fitch or Finch? I think it's Fitch. Fitch. Um, so that has so the, the reaction has been like, oh, the quality of U.S. debt is less. So yields go up. So bonds have dropped. And so the managers that have added duration, like you said, thinking they're smart, like, well, let me lock in three and a half or three point nine on a 10 year because it's probably not going to be there in a few years. And let me just lock this in. Now have actually added risk in their treasury portfolio when, like you said, Hey, buy a, a five and a quarter, five and a half, staring you right in the face with almost no duration risk, right? So, uh, yeah, it's very interesting to see the kind of reaction that this can have because what are portfolio managers going to have to do if rates continue to go up? They're going to have to sell their bonds. They're going to have to bring in. They're going to have to cut the risk, right? Typically, bond managers are looking to manage risk more than uh, having the growth. So, I don't know. It's definitely been a you know, hey, you think you're smart, but maybe you're not so smart kind of a year on a lot of fronts, especially on the fixed income world. All right. You mentioned the downgrade and maybe you and I are, uh, let's let's take opposite sides of this. I don't think this matters. Oh, I want to take, I want to take that side, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> I'll, take, I'll take the it matters side. Let's do it. All right. So I don't think it matters. And here's why. First, this is Fitch, who just went to AA plus. That's still in sort of the general same risk bucket as a as a AAA bond. And you know, S and P kind of did this already in 2013. So it's like, oh yeah, S and P, yeah, no, we knew they were AA plus, but now that Fitch did it, oh yeah, now we're taking it seriously. I don't think this matters at all. And you don't need a rating agency to tell you that. 
the Treasury and Janet Yellen. I, I, it's not Janet Yellen specifically, but yeah, I mean, the Treasury is is spending like drunken sailors on shore leave. Uh, I think they are issued about a trillion dollars in bonds this quarter. There's no more debt ceiling, at least, in, I don't know, for a couple of years. Like, this is a, this debt increase, uh, Larry Summers, Obama's uh, Treasury Secretary, said, you know, we should at least pretend like we care about debt, and at some point we're going to pay it down. They aren't even doing that anymore. So I think, listen, I think you're making my case for me here, right? You're, you're the hard case of where it does matter. So like, if you want to fundamentally look at the U.S.'s ability to, you know, pay back its debt or the debt that it's accruing here, which I think has had a lot to do with the downgrade, this is on a little bit of a spiral, right? Especially as we just talked about interest rates being high. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. I think it also matters. So that that was I hinted at my final point, but this is the point that I think I felt during uh, the the minor banking was it even a crisis of March the minor banking blip that we had this year. Um, there were a lot of our investors, Derek, that were concerned about the U.S. Uh, the U.S. Treasury's defaulting. Right, you remember this, right? And I think we were pretty. I. I I'm going to apologize to the clients that I was a little harsh with when I said, are you out of your mind? But uh, there was a lot of talk here and we saw this risk. And I think Fitch was, I think they probably would have made this call in April, um, but they decided to wait. So I think it's, I think they wanted to let things settle down before they actually came out with this. I think if they had come out with this, they would have caused a panic uh, earlier in the year. And I don't think they wanted to do this. And so I think the time when it would have mattered has uh, was back in March and April, and my guess is that is you know when they really would have liked to have put something out like this. Now let's talk about the spending for a minute, right? And then we could come back to this. You brought up the spending that's happening. Um, uh, I think we are in the what? Are we are we like approaching the trillion mark for the quarter, right? Uh, on what the Treasury is uh, 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 issuing, right? So my my thought here is that at interest rates where they are and the debt where it's going and growing, you do have a problem here that you're going to find yourself having to print more money to get out of this mess. And what does printing money do? Drives inflation. And what is the Fed going to do to beat down inflation? Raise rates more. So this is a circular you know, kind of problem that we could be running into. So if you had to come up with a reason why it's a problem, I think fundamentally, that's where you have to look at. Did I lose you? Oh, it's a problem, all right, Jay. But <laughs> I mean, look, I was on- I'm trying to make the argument on the other side for you. And I do think that it can matter. And, it, and clearly it's mattered in the markets. The last two days, bonds are down. It's, it's a problem. But let me tell you why it doesn't matter. Sovereign debt is a relative game. If we were the only ones doing this, then people would say, well, I'm going to go buy, you know, European country debt, or I'm going to go buy uh, Japan's bonds. Japan is what, I mean, I, don't even get me started about Japan. But, you know, maybe you go and you buy New Zealand debt. You know, don't get me started about Japan. So maybe you go out and you buy New Zealand's debt. Uh, they used to be better. It's a relative game. And so everyone's doing it. There's so much debt out there. And it just, it goes on and on and on. Now, I thought debt was a problem in the 1980s. And I continue to think it's a problem. And this is one of those things where, let, let's just quantify this. I had a chapter in my book, and at some point I'll be like, you know, I'll get introduced on CNBC. Derek, who 
who predicted the bond meltdown last year and the debt thing. I mean, it was all in my book, Broken Pie Chart. So I had a chapter in there and I had this chart. And basically, as our debt kept going up and up and up, our net interest payments, meaning what we what we have to pay out in interest on the stuff that we borrow when we borrow and we issue treasury bonds and bills and all that stuff, it was roughly, you know, 450 billion. And even though our debt kept coming up, going up and up and up, our debt payments were relatively constant because rates kept going down. By my estimation, they'll the Treasury will owe about $1.3 trillion next year in interest. To put that in perspective, Jay, that is the same amount, uh, just about the same amount we spent on Medicare and Medicaid, Social Security. Uh, it's more than defense. This is according to the CBO 2023 budget. Of course, they're spending way more than this. But yeah, it's starting to crowd out a lot. Like this becomes a really big percentage of it. Like at some point, do all the taxes just go to, to financing the debt? So yeah, Jay, I think it's a problem, but I don't think the downgrade is necessarily an issue because it's still double A plus and it's a relative game. So it matters or doesn't matter? Well, it, I don't think it. I don't think it really matters. I think it's you don't think the downgrade matters, but you think the problem that is uh, the underlying problem is 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 a real problem. Oh, they're right, and it's and nothing's going to happen with it. Nothing's going to change with any of this stuff. Politicians want to do two things: they want to make a lot of money and they want to get elected. And issuing a lot of debt and giving people free money is a good way of getting reelected. So, um, there you have it, Jay. They, okay, I'm not going to touch that one, but yes, <laughs> fine, <laughs> good enough. All right, well, we got a little off target here. Can we talk about, uh, as we were talking about, because I brought up the, sorry, I brought that topic up. Can, let's, can we talk about a little bit about kind of the aggregate bond index? Because I think it's it's like that benchmark that a lot of us use when it comes to evaluating bonds, right? Just the broader bond market. Um, can we, do you mind if we touch on this for a second? Because I, I hear about all the time about, well, how's the AGG doing? How's the aggregate bond market doing? This to me is something that I think might be still a little surprising to people because everybody, it feels like everybody feels like the markets are good, but not all markets are good here, are they? No, Jay. And uh, I'll I'll give the, uh, the headline here and then I want you to continue. But start of the drawdown in the US AGG and, and AGG, as you said, is, it's a bond index. It's got things like treasuries and investment grade corporates. Uh, August of 20 was the start of the drawdown. Uh, while the equity markets are within, or at least they were within, you know, a little less than 5% of the, the old all-time high, the drawdown was 17.2% on the AGG. And that's 36 months that this bear market's going on. Um, and Jay, it's turned back down a little bit too. So I know you, you like to talk about, you know, if you lose this much, what do you make? What do you need to make uh, to get back to break even? Like th this has a long way to go. Yeah, I mean, right, we're down, uh, you know, I don't know from, you know, exactly where we're marking today, but if you look at from the bottom, which was that 17% drawdown uh, to, to, to get back, you know, you need to make like 21% back right and we are much closer to the lows than uh than, than that high right when i take a look we are we are now as of you know 
the, uh, August 3rd as we're recording this, right? The AGG closed at levels uh, that we haven't seen since November 10th of 2022. The bottom on AGG, I think, if I'm not wrong, was October 24th. And so, you know, we're not, it's not that far from a time perspective and, and a pricing perspective uh, off from the bottom. I don't even think we're 2% away. Maybe we're 2% away from the bottom. So the on a price perspective. So, you know, when you look at this, like if you're still investing in bonds, um, it's not, it hasn't been the recovery that you would have, you know, and we're saying this, all of the things that are mixed into the AGG. It hasn't been the recovery that equities have seen at all. So, uh, yeah, I just I think it's one of those things that there are still parts of this market that uh, that that are not feeling all joyous like you might about the equity market. I mean, I think it's been great that the short end of the curve in treasuries offers a risk-free rate of over 5% now. Essentially, the risk-free rate is about 5.3, right? That's really good. And when I look at some of the, you know, I don't know what the yield is on AG, I should have checked it, but the spread between what you can get on, on essentially risk-free and what corporate bonds are yielding, I mean, it's, now you have choices. You have to say, do I want something risk-free or do I want to go a little bit further on the risk paradigm and go out and, you know, do investment grade corporates? Um, I don't know. I'm, it's 3.3 is the yield right now on AGG. So, yeah, you've got about a 200 basis point disadvantage by an AGG versus owning, you know, a short term government bond, which is kind of crazy. Right. Why would you why would you buy AGG? Well, I mean, no. Offense. Whoa, whoa. Sorry. Sorry. I'm not making a recommendation. But like if I'm trying to generate returns and manage risk, like it feels like a treasury is a better deal now. Yeah, I mean, I, oh, I agree. I mean, it's it's uh, there's reasons to buy AGG if you think if you like that duration, if you think that there if those that yield you know composition is going to go lower, they have longer duration in their treasury components in there too. And the thing with you know you can buy a risk free rate right now five five point three five point four it's annualized, so you own it for three months, but it's annualized. Uh, you would have to, you know, if you went out two years, you get um, close to 5% right now. No, I agree with you. Like to me, if if you just covered up the two names and I didn't know anything else, I'd say, oh, that's interesting. Don't corporate bonds have to go down then because the yields have to go up because if you're doing something that's a little more risky than treasuries. So interesting times, Jay, for sure. Uh, in the bond market. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, there's appreciation opportunity, right? If AGG got back just to where it was, uh, you know, as recently as the middle of May, you've got 4% just of growth in the fund itself, right? That can happen and you're earning a dividend, right? So look, I, I you're right. I, I came down pretty hard on it. We use bonds when we need a specific, uh, uh, you know, targeted of re- target return or target yield. And we're always looking to minimize the risk of those because we're just in those for the yield and how it helps us run option strategies, right? So I think for our usage, uh, um, you know, we lean towards the treasury side. But you're right. There's plenty of reasons to own AGG. My apologies to the AGG owners out there. <laughs> Steve, yeah, we can get you a t-shirt. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. Whoa. No, it's, it's – uh, 
There were, but this goes back to the there is no alternative period, you know, from 2008 on where there was no yield in bonds. So if you wanted a yield, you had to go to the uh, really out on the risk curve, and that meant high yield, or you went into equities. There is an alternative now. I mean, if you're happy earning, I mean, you could get pretty safely 5% a year right now. Uh, you can get pretty safely 5% for the next two years. You got some interest rate risk if you go out that far. But yeah, it's, uh, yeah, all right. So we'll, we, we've beaten this up enough. Jay, you you brought up, uh, let me do some quick hits. And, and I want to get into, because I touched on it last week with the idea of uh, the cheapest put protection you could ever buy. We wrote an article, published, the, I'll put a link to that on the Zake Financial website. Uh, but a couple of quick hits here. Jay, year three of the presidential cycle. And I would say equities have obviously had a really good year. Earnings are less bad than they've been expected. I think, you know, minus 9% year over year was the expectation for this quarter that's ongoing right now. So far, the expectation now is about minus 5% year over year. This was the trough in earnings. Year three of a presidential cycle what is it, 90-something percent of the time or 80% of the time it's been up. We're in year three of a presidential cycle. Uh, We are moving into some historically weak months. Now, before everyone says, Derek just told me I should sell or short the market. That's not what I'm saying. But when you look at August and September, October, November, there's less percentage historically that those months are positive than some of the other months. But Jay, you and I both well know that we've seen really good August. We've seen really good September. I mean, it's sort of, but I don't know, maybe a little seasonal weakness here. I, I don't know what we're seeing, but any thoughts? Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, this is not news. Every September, the, the media reminds us that September is the worst, you know, month on average for the market. So, uh, and, and there's always plenty of opportunity for volatility in August. I can think of plenty of times where things came out of the blue at us in August, and I can think of plenty of times where August was strong. So August can be a month of kind of increased volatility, which by the way, wouldn't be a surprise coming off the really low volatility we saw in June and July. But let's, let's get back to that. We'll touch that on that point in a minute. So no, like I, so this, this is not a surprise. It's the averages, I think, uh, based on this report that I'm looking at. Like, August is up, you know, in the third year of a presidential cycle, 48% of the time. So it's a coin toss. And the average is basically zero, right? I think it's, you know, minus 0.02%. So it's called a zero on average. And it's a, it's a coin toss. And then September typically is a period of uh, where you can get negative years. Uh, all that being said, I actually always think October is the scariest month of all. Like the big, big moves seem to, even though the averages are higher for October, so don't get me wrong. Like on average, the market's up in October, 61% of the time the market's up in October. But I think the down years, uh, the down t- the months, sorry, the years when October is down, it always feels worse than the other down months. So August and October, typically, I don't know, our experience since we've been, trading here at Zegas in, uh, since 2010, uh, and even before that, I would say, um, you know, those, this is not unusual for this time of the, this time of the year. This just happens. It's okay. 
right? Now, December is always, you know, happy, happy, joy, joy, it seems. So it feels like if you could make it through this, you know, get through this rough patch, which may or may not be a rough patch, then you get rewarded in December. But again, that is uh, positive 74% of the time. That feels better than 50-50, I guess. Yeah, I, I'm always reminded too, I, I didn't even write the article this year. I got tired of writing it, Jay. But it's the sell and may go away fallacy or not fallacy. I mean, may uh, has a is 50-50 coin to us as well in, in the third year. I, and you know, imagine if you sold in May and went away this summer from equities. You would have missed a heck of a lot. So I don't know. It, it's I think if anything, we can say that this third year of the presidential cycle is well so far it's been right and it says post the midterms third year of the presidential cycle markets usually do pretty well okay historical came true this year right jay so far so So far far. i want to ask you about so i kind of tease the idea of this it's an underappreciated aspect of option pricing and it has to do with interest rates so normally everyone talks about volatility, implied volatility, how volatile is something going to be? And that, inf- that affects how juicy option premiums are or how much in the money, out of the money. But for a long time, and I feel like, you know, Jay, as we get older, it's like we remember options pricing before zero rates, but this whole generation of traders and even industry people haven't seen this. And so maybe if, if you want to start, I mean, just how interest rates affect calls and put prices, Jay? Okay. So this is something that hasn't been relative for a long time, right? Because rates have been fairly low and, uh, you know, we've got this, uh, you know, treasury yield that is, you know, over 5% and on the short end of the curve. And so we start to see that come uh, reflected in option prices and, you know, this is uh, we're talking about row. It's like the most you know ignored Greek of all the <laughs> of the Greeks. I don't I don't want to call it the redheaded stepchild, but it feels like that when it comes to the actual dynamics. And so what happens is um, there's a, there's two ways to take a look at this, right? But the general dynamic that you're talking about, Derek, is puts get cheaper, calls get expensive when interest rates move higher, right? And uh, if I really had to, I could I, I'm going to give one example, Derek. I think you can give another one that might be more relevant. When when you're when you're trading in options, um, you know there's somebody on the other side of your trade, right? There's a market maker on the other side of the trade. So, you know what happens is if you let's just say you're going to buy a stock, right? XYZ is trading at $100, and you want to buy a call on that stock. Well, they are selling you that call, right? And so they're assuming that risk. You're on the call because you bought the call. Um, but they're, for, in order for them to get neutral, they have to actually get long the stock, right? So when you're short a call, you're bearish, right? Uh, so the market maker ends up being bearish against your bullish position. Well, in order for them to get neutral, they have to buy the stock. Well, guess what that means? They're buying stock with their cash. So they have to pay for the stock. And so they will charge in the price of the option. They will increase the price of the option to cover their cost, right? To cover their cost to go out and buy the stock. And remember, their cost is what's known as cost to carry, what they could have been earning with that cash. And so if they could have been earning 5% and you had 100 shares uh, and you bought one call, they would have to go buy, let's assume, 50 shares. And then in that scenario, you they're going to charge you for the, that call 
the amount of interest they would give up on spending fifty dollars to uh, you know for the uh, you know getting fifty shares of that stock. And so it's an interesting dynamic that you start to see the price of calls get inflated. Um, what you were talking about earlier, Derek, in the first part of this is like, look, we used to say the when a, when a call is more expensive, it means people are willing to pay more for a call, and that means they're more bullish on the stock. And while that is still true, we talk we talk about that as being skew. While that is still true, don't be deceived by more expensive calls because some of that is being driven by interest rates. So don't always think, oh, the market must be super bullish. Look how expensive all these calls are. Oh, and by the way, the flip side is the puts get cheaper um, for the same reasons. Uh, yeah, look, I don't think I have to. Uh, I should. Yeah, I should just be bullish everything because calls are you know more expensive. It tells you I'm trying to read the tea leaves of options. Don't be fooled because interest rates are actually inflating the price of calls. Was that a that might have been the hard way to describe it? You want to take the easy way, or you think that covered it? The easy way, I think it's good to the way that you put it because that you know on, on using your example, someone is buying one one hundred strike call, essentially is representing hundred shares at hundred. So it's $10,000. So the market maker could have $10,000 in an account earning 5%, or they could buy this stock. And let's assume it doesn't have a dividend. But I'll ask you about the dividend in a second. I mean, it, it's sort of like, it's it's all opportunity cost. And the markets haven't had to deal with this for a long time. So I like the way that you put that because it's, what is somebody giving up on the other side? And it's like, there's no free lunch on Wall Street. There's definitely no free lunch. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and and you think about it, like if you were bullish a stock, Derek, where I was, where I was going to say the easy, like a, a way to think about this is instead of paying a hundred dollars a share, maybe you're only paying, you know, ten to f- five or ten dollars, and you have all this extra cash, but you have the same exposure, right? So, right, you could say, let's just say it costs you ten bucks for that hundred strike call, you're left with, you know, nine thousand dollars in your portfolio, right? You bought a call. $10 times 100K. There we go. I got it. It's a thousand bucks, but I had 10,000. So now I'm earning, I'm earning treasury. I'm earning that rate. I'm earning the 5% on my $9,000. And the market knows you're going to do that. So then they know they can charge you a little more because in your math, you're like, ooh, I'm going to earn 5% and I'm long the call and it feels like I'm long the stock. So it's, yeah, it's just the different ways to think about those combinations. But now that you have this interest rate component, it really does impact the price of calls. It just does. And a lot of people don't think about that. By the way, on the flip side, if you're a covered call seller, you probably now can get a little more for the calls uh, of a similar volatility than you could have before. Now, again, you get farther out of the money. All of this starts to evaporate because the market maker doesn't have to pay as much. So that means they're not going to keep the prices high, all those kinds of things. Uh, but we're talking kind of like at the money options, right? Which is where the, where you, this is reflected the most. So yeah, it's an interesting dynamic of, you know, buying a call and you, putting your money into treasuries. By the way, this is one of the reasons we use this strategy, by the way, in some of our, uh, uh, some of our models, because we like getting paid 5% with very little risk owning a treasury, especially if I'm willing to hold the treasury to maturity then we love that, right? That goes back to the AGG versus bond discussion we had before. You know, we like treasuries to help us finance our options-based strategies. So 
it could work to your advantage. And, you know, we, we sell a lot of calls these days too. It's just, it just, it's a little bit of a change in the option market, but don't think you're reading the tea leaves uh, and, and thinking that, Ooh, the market is just bullish because look how much more people are willing to pay for a call. It's not the, it's not really the case. Yeah. And for a long time, I mean, a decade, you'd always look at an at the money uh, option chain and you would expect the puts to be higher than, than the calls. And that's, that's not the case anymore. I want to do two things. One is I want to put, just quantify in, let's say on, on a premium basis with this cost to carry is so I'll, I'll give an example. And then Jay, I want to ask you, you know, about the dividend uh, as well. So I used a XYZ, our, our favorite stock, Jay. Uh, can we give recommendations in XYZ? Totally made up stock. Uh, only second. Yeah, ABC. no. I'm bullish. Yeah. <laughs> so what let's say do? 100, yeah, 160 strike price. And to figure out the cost of carry embedded in the, in the premium of, let's say, you know, an at-the-money option. What are you doing is you're actually taking what's called the present value of the strike price. I'm not going to go into the math, but basically, if if my strike price is 160 and my my risk free rate's five and a half, I'm taking 160 times five and a half percent, and then however many days I'm carrying that, so you, you sort of divide it by uh, 365. But you know, I, I an example I gave here is I, I calculated a 326 day to expire option, 160 strike, five and a half percent risk-free rate, that cost of carry is about $7.86. So if you go from zero interest rates to five and a half percent risk-free rate, well, all else equal, that call should have an additional $7.86 because as you explained, Jay, that's the cost of carrying. That's what you, the market maker foregoes. Uh, you also have cash in your account, and you're earning a risk-free rate theoretically on it. But it's it's pretty significant, and I don't I think it's really under understood. I don't think I'm supposed to say those two words twice in a row, but I just did it. So so get over it. Uh, but the dividends too, you know, the other side of no free lunch, and we've talked about this before. But many of the audience, I know, they're not, you know, going back to our archives. Uh, the higher the dividend, generally, right, Jay? The the higher the uh, that sort of is is embedded in the put side, and it actually causes the cost to go down. The higher the dividend, right? So maybe just talk about that, and we'll we'll kind of move on. Yeah, sure. So uh, what can happen in that scenario is what what let's talk about um, uh, a stock that has a you know two percent dividend, right? Uh, that that pays a two percent dividend every quarter. That when a hundred dollar stock that's paying a two percent dividend pays two dollars, and on the day that uh, it goes X date, which is the day when the dividend is kind of calculated and then put out to the street, the stock will drop by the amount of that dividend. So if you know you're going into uh, the X date ahead of the X date, you have a hundred shares of this hundred dollar stock, um, and then the next day it goes X div. Uh, you now have 100 shares of a $98 stock plus $2 per share of cash plus another, uh, uh, you know, $200. And so what happens is, you know, the price of the stock drops. And if you're an option trader, you go, oh, how do I know? What, how can I capitalize on this price of the stock dropping? And if they're not going to change the strike prices, which they haven't done, sometimes they will adjust strike prices on a big dividend. But if they're not going to change the strike prices, uh, on a big dividend, what that means is you could just buy the put 
and it goes up in value by $2. Well, the market knows that. Nobody's going to sell you that put that you're going to buy that profits when the stock goes down. No one's going to sell you that put knowing it's going to go down $2 tomorrow. So what we find is that embedded in the put is a significant portion of the dividend, right? So you may be paying a buck 75 more than what you would normally pay for that put as you're going into uh, the X date because the market knows the stock is going to drop by $2. So they're not going to let you get away with that, right? Again, no free lunch. And so when the, when the, price of the put is inflated. That means the price of the call gets deflated. Also, that's another reason, you know, if you're doing covered calls over a dividend stock, you're not going to get as much in the call you're selling because the market knows there is a tendency for the ticker to go for the stock to go down when the dividend gets paid. So all of those things, the dividend can absolutely cause the opposite effect of this uh, dynamic that we're talking about with interest rates. But that has been around for a long, long time. We actually have strategies that take advantage of that too, right? If you can't buy the stock, a poor man's way of running, uh, you know, earning the dividend is selling put spreads instead, right? Where you're going to capture some of that, a good portion of that dividend in the short put that you sell. So it's just, it's one of those things, Derek, that um, a lot of people don't talk about dividends embedded in the options. But if you're trading options and you understand that, hey, stock's going to go down, put should go up in value, market knows that too, won't let you get away with that for nothing. We've tried. Don't get away with it. (laughs) It's almost a a net. You know, if I was doing, if I say back of the napkin, back of the envelope, you sort of say the risk-free rate minus the dividends. Not exactly um, because dividends, you know, you have to figure out when they get paid and everything like that. Uh, I'll bring this up too. Sometimes the option market sniffs things out better than than even analysts. And Jay, I don't know if, if you remember AT and T. We were looking at the options market, and you had messaged me and said, "I don't, I don't, something's wrong here in the price of the put." Not that you didn't understand it. You were telling me, "Hey, something's up here." And one of the, I think I I responded and you and I went back and forth. We're like, oh, the options market doesn't believe in AT&T's dividend. Sure enough, they cut their dividend, right? Like they sniffed yeah, it no, out. You're absolutely right. Because what, what, the, what the scenario that we saw was that, look, if I bought the stock and bought a put knowing what my dividend is going to be, it looks like I've got like a risk-free position on, right? Where between the dividend and where your protection is in the long put, uh, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't lose, and we said, "Well, there's there shouldn't be any scenario where you can't lose, right?" And so you you were you were smart enough to say, "Well, that just means they don't believe the dividend's going to be what it is, right?" Because uh, you're not going to get what you think you're going to get over the next year. And you were right. Now, look, there are some times that we've seen some, you know, oil, uh, you know, energy-based companies where it's kind of worked out. Um, actually, the one we used uh, just got per- just got bought, right? MMP, I think, was bought. A few uh, a few months ago, right, had a very high dividend, and uh, we were concerned that that was going to be cut. But you're right; sometimes the options market will say, "Hey, you're not going to get the dividend. We don't think it's going to make it." Right. So there's probabilities in everything, and the probability of a drop in the dividend was foreseen in the options market by you, and that's actually what happened. Well, I think we both saw it, but we <laughs> it was there, and we talked about it. Yeah. It's a tell. It's a tell. And it's, you know, 
really smart people are pricing options. And as you said, there's no free lunch on Wall Street. So you may think there's an arbitrage, you found something. There's usually a reason, especially nowadays that uh, with computers that they can do that. So, all right, Jay, I think uh, let's leave it there. You don't, why, you don't want my arbitrage? You don't want my arbitrage trade? All right, we'll save it for next time. Oh, wait, I, I had the full put call parity uh, formula long form written out. I was going to go through an example, but uh, <laughs> alas, I... Uh, <laughs> you know, I always have the black model up on my computer. The black Schultz, so. that's right. Yeah, yeah let's go through that. that by hand. Let's do it <laughs> actually by hand, right? So, all right, Jay, yeah. any recommendations this week for the audience? Uh, you know, I think I mentioned last time I was on, I was going to uh, start watching uh, a new show. And uh, I think it was on Hulu. And, uh, or maybe I didn't mention what I was going to watch. And of course, now as I'm in the middle of, saying what it is it's uh oh it's just it was justified so it was a show that was on i think it was on like tnt years ago and uh, i think hulu just put out kind of a after a four or five year hiatus a new uh series so i've been watching justified but i started from the beginning and uh i'm enjoying it so far if you haven't seen it um i definitely so far first season in i'm, uh, I'm definitely hooked so is this like how many episodes, how many years, how many episodes? It's always tough. because it's like six seasons, 10 to 13 episodes per season. And then they took this break and now we've got this new season. So I accidentally started watching the new season. So no, 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 no I need to go back to the beginning. But the first episode of the new season was like, whoa, that was pretty good. So I, yeah, I'm good. I'm hooked. I think uh, it might've been you. I recommended The Wire too, which was on HBO. And that's that's a lift. That's like five seasons, 20 episodes a season. I might even be more, more than five. Oh yeah. High, high marks on the wire. Absolutely. High marks on the wire. Yeah. I, Breaking Bad's another one I've, I've never seen and everyone keeps telling me to watch it. But then I looked at the episode count and I'm like, oh man, that, that, that's just a real investment. It's like 96 episodes. Oh. And uh, I feel like I am one of the few people that, and I, by the way, I've tried, I've tried three times to start that. And I just, can't get it. I know it, it has rave reviews and maybe I just, you know, it's not the right time when I'm watching it. Who knows? But I have not been able to, to jumpstart, but I've definitely enjoyed Justified. All right, Jay. I, um, I don't have any recommendations actually. Oh, you know what? I'm going to ask you, let's, let's get a bonus one for the audience. Oppenheimer. You saw it. Did you, did, was it awesome? Oh, it was not for me. Oh, so, boy. Yeah, I, I Indiana Jones bad or or is this no, <laughs> no, 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 it was not that. All right, so here's the thing, right? And I'm not going to give anything away. And I think I probably went in expecting something a little different because I kept hearing you got to go see it in IMAX, the 70 millimeter, and I did all that. Right, it took me three weeks to get my tickets or two weeks to get my tickets, and I got the best spot in the in the theater. And look, I'm not giving anything away. We know the story is about. Oppenheimer and how they, you know, produce the A-bomb. Obviously, at some point, there's an A-bomb that goes off, right? But that was visually stunning. But there was no reason to go see that thing in IMAX. It is more of a documentary or a biography, right? And so while there's a lot that goes on that I didn't know about Oppenheimer, but, you know, I was expecting, you know, uh, a Christopher Nolan movie, and I didn't really get one, right? As a reference, he has done Inception, Interstellar, uh, all the Batmans with Christian Bale, he did, uh, he did, uh, I don't know, there's another really great, oh, my, one of my favorites, Tenet, 
right? Those are kind of amazing stories and movies. This was more of a biography and it was very interesting. And, you know, he did some amazing things and he was, you know, the father of, you know, the atomic bomb and uh, explains why, but it didn't need to be three hours long. And it certainly wasn't what I was expecting from a Christopher Nolan movie. All right. Well, there you have it. And uh, last one I saw was Mission Impossible, but I, I've already mentioned that one. It was, if you like Mission Impossible, just go see it because it gives you exactly what you want. Uh, but apparently it's not doing as well in, in the box office as they had hoped. So, Well, Barbie's just killing it. Barbie is What's killing that? it. Barbie is killing it. I I saw the preview for that and I it was, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, listen, I, I, I have heard a lot of great things about it. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, all the members of my family have seen it and they said I should go see it. And I said, great, I will probably see it on video and I'll be happy to sit down and watch it. But it was not my, uh, it was, listen, Oppenheimer's definitely soured me. So I'm thinking I'll wait for Barbie on video. Is it, is this a, a short on AMC then? You're, you're not going to be spending money there? Is that, is that what you're saying? <laughs> uh, I think I have to go see Haunted House. You know, I'm just, I'm a big Disney fan. I've gone through, sorry, Haunted Mansion. I think I've, I've gone through the Haunted Mansion ride at Disney World, I mean, at least 30 times in my life. So they said, if you've gone on the ride, you'll appreciate the movie. And there's some fun stars in that that I'll watch. So I'll probably go back and see uh, uh, yeah. uh, Haunted Mansion. Of course, I'm I'm definitely excited for some Star Wars stuff that's coming out, but we could re- maybe I'm maybe I'm giving way too much away at this point about myself, so I'll leave it there. <laughs> All right, Jay. Well, thanks for everyone for uh, tuning in, and uh, we'll be back next week, maybe with Jay, maybe not, for episode two thirty three. See you, everyone.